0: Let's pray together before we begin. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day. We thank you for our time. We thank you for this place that you've provided that we can gather together and uh, sing praises to your name and open your word and and hear from you. And uh, we just ask this morning as we do that, that your spirit would move in this place, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see the truth of your word and that your spirit would come and apply it to our hearts and our lives and that we'd see more clearly who you are and what you've done for us and The way you're shaping us and the way you love us and uh, we just ask that your spirit would move freely in this place For without that we are hopelessly lost and this would be a waste of time And so we just ask that you would come and empower our time here together. We pray all these things in jesus name. Amen Amen. Uh, as we begin this morning, I was just thinking about uh, uh, some Information that I learned this week. That's probably in a lot of ways very pointless, but it seemed to have some connections To me, I read uh, that there are over 600 reality TV shows currently on television, 600 over 600. Actually, there's more than that. So there's more than 600, but uh, there's at least 600. And I was thinking about the reason I was thinking about that and I was reading this article and just thinking about this idea of reality television, what it is. And if you've ever seen any of those shows like that, often what it is, is people that are willing to make fools of themselves to get on TV. That's basically what that kind of sums up the genre of it, uh, to try to be famous in some way to get your few minutes on television, you'll do all kinds of things. And, and I was thinking about the motivations behind that. What would, what would make you go on TV and eat insects and whatever else they do on, on those shows. And, uh, and, and part of it is what, what, what is coming to is that we desperately want to be known and, and make a name for ourselves or, or have some kind of, uh, notoriety or, or make something. And so people will do crazy things to try to get some of that, to get some kind of, uh, that, that picture of look at me and, and get on TV for just a few minutes. And so, you know, as I was thinking about us being in first Corinthians and we're going to be in first Corinthians, we're going to finish up chapter one today, which is on page six eighteen If you've got a Bible like this that are in your pews, if you want to follow along with us, but as we go back into first Corinthians, you know, obviously there's no reality TV or shows like that happening in ancient Corinth, but the heart issue that's behind some of those things is very much alive and well 2000 years ago as it is Today And so in Corinth, part of the backstory, story, uh, what's going on, the context of what we're looking at today is, is the people in the church in Corinth were latching on to different teachers in different places. And they were they were holding on to them and going, uh, I'm somebody because I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter. And we were looking at that last week in verses 10. To eighteen, And then this week, what we're going to see is Paul kind of keeps uh, correcting that, rebuking that, uh, bringing them back to a more centered picture of who we are as in Christ. And in doing so, he really starts to have a uh, comparison between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And he starts to kind of put these side by side and to talk about that and to show us. Because what happens is we seek for our own glory and our own fame and all these things when we buy in kind of to the wisdom of the world. And so Paul's going to correct that and bring us back and show us uh, what it looks like to put man's reasoning versus God's reasoning and how that works together. And so this morning, as we do that, I want us just to read verse 18 together and then we'll read the rest as we work through. But read verse 18 with me. So first Corinthians one eighteen says this for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And <clears throat> I want that to be really kind of the. The, the theme over what we're looking at today, this idea of the, fo- the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the word of God. And so we're going to look at it like this. And there is an outline if you want to follow along in the back of your bulletin that just kind of helps you keep this in order, if that, that helps you as we go through it. But we're going to go at it like this with that idea over it. First, why is the cross folly to so many? That's the first question. The second question is, how do we avoid it being folly, the things of God and the cross and and, uh, the gospel? How do we avoid that being folly? And then lastly, it says that it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So we're just going to ask, how is it power or why is it power? So. Uh, what, why is the cross folly to so many? How do we avoid it being that folly? And then lastly, how is it power in our lives? And so let's just start right at the beginning with why the cross is folly to so many. And you'll see here just in the beginning of that verse 18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so when we think about why it's folly, we need to start right there because Paul says it's folly to those who are perishing. And so we need to ask the question who are perishing and why? That's important to his argument here and what he's getting at. And so when we ask the question is who is perishing and why? The answer is simply that we are all perishing uh, apart from Christ. All people are sinful and because of our sin, that is the case for all of us. Romans five says it this way. Sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Right. Or Paul will say it in Romans six. The wages of sin is a death. And so we are perishing because of our sin. And so we're all sinners and we're all perishing. And the only way that we escape that, the only way that we're not perishing is through Jesus and what he's come to do. Jesus would say this very clearly in John chapter three. If you know John chapter three, it's Jesus having a discussion with Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the day. And and as they're talking about these things and Nicodemus is asking these questions and and, and Jesus is telling him what it looks like to be born again and, the, and what the gospel is and all these things. And he gets to John three sixteen, probably the most one of the most well uh, memorized verses. You go to VBS or, or uh, Sunday school as a child. That's one of the first verses we memorize oftentimes. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the, the connotation there, the, the, the context of John three sixteen is that we're perishing, that we needed God to send his son in the world to keep us from perishing. Right. He says the only way that we won't perish is to believe on Jesus. And if you read in that context and you read Jesus's uh, uh, conversation there with Nicodemus, he gets he, he gets even clearer in verses 17 and 18 of John chapter three and verse 17. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We like verse 17 in our culture. People like that very much that Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save." People go, yes, you see that Jesus is is, is for everybody and he doesn't have a problem with anybody and he didn't come to condemn anybody. But they often don't read the next verse. Because what he says in verse 18 is whoever believes in him, talking about Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so when we consider the question of who is perishing and why is we're all perishing, we're all ending, going that way or apart from Christ, that is the ends. We will be separated from God for eternity because of our sin before a holy and perfect and just God. And so when we think about that, that's that's what we're talking about of who is perishing. Uh, so I want us just to think. So the question becomes those who are perishing that are that are broken and sinful and, and wrong. And, and then the, the gospel comes and says that Jesus is coming to save us from that. Why is that folly? And right? if, if we're perishing and we're in need and we're sinful and we're broken people, why is it folly to hear that God has come to save you? He's come to do what you can't do for you. That should be wonderful good news. That's why we call it the gospel good news. And I would say the first part of why the cross is folly to so many is simply this. There's many who believe right now that they are not currently perishing. That they don't need it. I don't need help. And, and I would say to you, the, the reason that is the case is because. All of us are sinful, and that is our natural state. Man has turned his back on God. We've talked about this a lot, that sin is ignoring God and his world. And when we've done that, when we've turned our backs on God and we have ignored him, what happens is we become very inwardly focused. We exchange, as Romans uh, 1 says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship the creation rather than the creator. And so we make ourselves the sinner instead of God. And when we do that... We we have a hard time believing that we need somebody to save us from ourselves right? because we're the sinner, And so what happens is the cross becomes folly because of our sin nature and our sin nature is simply that I'm the center of the world and I'm the ultimate decider and I am the uh, the one that that controls my destiny. And it's not about somebody else. It's all about me. And so when somebody comes and says you're you are a sinner and you're separated from God and you need a savior, that's very hard to hear. And so we'll say, ah, no, I'm good. I don't need saving for myself. I'm okay. And so oftentimes I've heard people, I've had people tell me this in conversation that, yes, I realize I've made some mistakes and some different things, but I've learned from them and I don't need somebody else to forgive me. And so we make it all about us. We make it self centered and it's all about me. And so that's one of the biggest reasons that the cross becomes folly. We start to buy into that. Look at what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so Paul kind of asks this question about the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And, And in man's wisdom, we make it all about us and we become about me. And so Paul goes and he quotes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter twenty-nine, here is what he's quoting, and what he's doing is he's quoting a text in which Isaiah is uh, speaking to God, and God's telling him what to go tell the nations that have made God secondary, that they're putting him aside, and saying we don't need God, right? And the wisdom of the world, we make it self-centered; it's about me. I don't need God to tell me I can make these decisions myself. And so Paul quotes Isaiah, and he brings this out in Isaiah chapter twenty-nine, and so. God is is saying, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart God's showing, telling us, I'm going to make it. I'm going to show you how it's not really about you, that it's really about me. And I am the sinner. and I'm going to do this and I'm going to show you this. And so we're seeing uh, Paul pointing back to the prophets. And and I was going back and I was reading through Isaiah 29 this week and I I read a commentary uh, by a name. Uh, A man named Alec Moyer, who's a a wonderful biblical scholar, and he's wrote an excellent commentary on Isaiah. And he says what we see here is what happens when we exalt human over divine. And then he says it is the reversal of all that is right and proper. And that that's what God is addressing in Isaiah chapter 29. I thought, yes, he's got it. When we make uh, the created things greater than the creator, we've reversed the order that is natural. Right. When we say back to the creator, no, I'm I can do this on my own. I don't need you. We've 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 reversed all that, as Moyer says, is right and proper. And what he goes on to say in his commentary is there's two things that start to happen when we do that. And he says the first is that we begin to see God is no more than we are. He's no greater than we are. And so what Moyer says is then that leads to a spirit of self-sufficiency. I don't need you. You're not any greater than I am. I don't really need God to tell me what to do. I've got this myself, which is the original sin. It's what Adam and Eve did. God said, trust me. And they said, ah, we'll do it alone. We got it. We don't really need you to tell us. And so a spirit of self-sufficiency comes in. And that's what happens. That's, that's the wisdom of the age. I'm good on my own. I don't need anybody to tell me. I certainly don't need a God to tell me. The second thing Moyer brings up is he says uh, that when we we buy into this and we exchange this divine reversal of putting the creation above the creator, we end with he has nothing to do with who we are. That is, God has nothing to do with who we are. I'm not defined in any way by who God is, that it doesn't matter. And he said that leads to a spirit of Arrogance. Right. And so a spirit of self-sufficiency and a spirit of arrogance. And as I read that and I was thinking about that in Isaiah twenty nine, what Paul's addressing here in the church in Corinth, I couldn't help but think of an interview I saw a couple years ago uh, with a man named Richard Dawkins. And if you know who Richard Dawkins is, he's an evolutionary biologist. Uh, He wrote a bestseller called The God Delusion, in which he he lays out his case for why all religion and all belief in God is absolute absurdity to him. And he mocks it and kind of makes fun of it. And now he's made a living really of going around and doing these debates. And uh, he's kind of famous for saying that believing in God is like believing in the invisible spaghetti monster. That's his little catchphrase, kind of. It's the same thing. You're just making it up and it doesn't really make any sense. And so I was thinking of this interview I saw with Dawkins. And so the interviewer asked him the question. He says, Uh, he says, do you know how the, the, the world started, how everything came into being? And his answer is no, no one knows how it got started. But then he quickly says, but we know what kind of event it must have been, right? No one knows, but we know what kind of event it must have been. And so the interviewer asked him the question. He says, so you have no idea how it started. And he says, no, no, I don't. And nor does anyone else. But then he quickly goes on to say this, and this is a quote from, uh, Maybe in some other part of the universe, a civilization evolved through an evolutionary process, probably some Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, this is a possibility, an intriguing possibility, and I suppose it's possible you might find evidence for that if you looked in the details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. That designer could well be a higher intelligence from somewhere else in the universe, but that higher intelligence itself would have to have come about by some ultimately explicable process. So what he says, and then he goes on later to say there's absolutely no chance that the God of the Bible exists. So what he's saying, and I just want you to understand exactly what he's saying. Possibly this planet was seeded by aliens from a faraway galaxy that evolved, but there's no possibility that it was God. And that's that's his thesis. And that's what he comes to. And as I I read that and I thought about what he said, and then I I was reading what Moyer says in his commentary on Isaiah. I couldn't help but think the spirit of self-sufficiency and arrogance. I can dream up in my mind how possibly it could be aliens because that would fit with what I believe in my worldview and what I see, but not God. And so when we think about why the cross is folly to so many, it's because we become so taken with ourselves and our own worldview and our own thoughts. And I've decided and I've worked this out. It was no different in Paul's day. If you read in verses twenty two and twenty three, he says, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And so Paul says, this is folly. The cross is folly to so many Jews and so many Gentiles. And the reason he says that that is the case is, is if you know anything about the Jewish belief in the day when Jesus came, or, or the Greeks and what they believed, the, uh, the, the Greek philosophers and what they said, what you had was the Jews couldn't believe in Jesus. So many of them missed that Jesus, and not all of them, but so many. Did because they had this idea that a conquering Messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow governments and he was going to ascend to the throne and he was going to do all these things. And so when Jesus came as the suffering servant who came to serve and to show what it means to love God and to love other men perfectly, they couldn't grasp that was folly to them. That's not what the Messiah is going to do. They had decided what exactly he would look like that they missed when he came or with Greeks. they had this idea and this philosophy that the physical world was bad, that we want to escape it. At death, we finally get rid of the physical world, and that's a wonderful and good thing. And why would anyone want to come into this world? And so to them, it was folly because of their worldview that a God, and they believed in many gods, but that a God would come down and take on flesh and walk amongst us. To them, that was just ludicrous. Why would anybody want to do that? We want to escape this world. And take it another step further when Jesus dies and his resurrection, that he would come back into a body was so offensive. And so they completely dismissed it, just like uh, Richard Dawkins and those like him today completely dismiss God and what Jesus did because they point to science and technology. In Jesus's day, it was just for different reasons, but it was the same thing. And so what Paul says is it's folly to those that are perishing, those that are rejecting God. And it's folly because of our own arrogance and our own self-sufficiency. I know better. I've figured it all out and it doesn't fit with my worldview. So therefore, it's folly. And so the second question then comes. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid falling into seeing what God's doing is folly? And of course, the, the big answer, and we spent all our time really last week on this. So I'm going to just say this very briefly. Is how do we avoid this folly is that God moves. The Holy Spirit works and he does things and he opens eyes and he shows people and he confounds what we think we know. And he comes in. You see this all the way through, as Paul says in verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God or verse 30 says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The only way this happens, the only way that we're not seeing this as folly is God moves. His gospel is proclaimed and his spirit comes and he changes hearts. That's how it happens. But I want us to think, though, what about our heart in it when he starts to do that? What does that look like? Some of the particulars of that. And I wanted to say that first, that we make sure that we see that it is Christ moving and God moving and his gospel that that this happens. But I want us to think about the things that we can start to talk with friends and neighbors and people about who think the cross is folly. And so I would start with just saying that to recognize, to avoid it as being folly, we need to see ourselves as we are. We need to see ourselves as we are. And the reason I say that is, is uh, just think for a second. I, I was trying to go back. I had heard a quote uh, years ago about how many years in the history of humankind that we've been at war. And it was something like all of them, basically. But I couldn't find the right, the, the number when I, when I went and looked. But what I did find was this, and I thought it was, uh, kind of made the same point. Uh, last year, 2012, there were ten different wars or conflicts going on in our world today. In 2012, and over 120,000 people died in those. In 2012, and so when I think about, when we talk about, oh, we're evolving and, and technology and all these things and how great man is and all that we do, and that we're we're so self-sufficient and we're our arrogance of what we're doing and who we are, and then you look that over 100,000 people died in wars last year. Not not in the Middle Ages. Not. A hundred years ago, not a thousand years ago, last year, that's what's going on. And you start to think the arrogance that we have, maybe that's a little bit unfounded that we've figured everything out. But then I started to think, too, uh, and you don't even have to believe in God or the God of the Bible to know that, to see that you can totally be rejecting all of that and see that 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 is true. But, but if you do believe in the God of the Bible or you do believe the Ten Commandments, God gave us the Ten Commandments. So I want you just to think for a second. What would our world look like if we followed the Ten Commandments? Just the Ten Commandments. I did this with a, with a high school class years ago. I was doing student teaching and we spent two days of them writing things that would be different if we just followed the Ten Commandments. Just the, the ripple effect of, of if we didn't murder and there was no lying. And there was no stealing and there was no uh, sex outside of marriage. Just that one alone. Think about that for a minute, what that would do to our culture. And it was incredible the things that would change just from that. And I say all that just to say to think about who ourselves, who we are apart from God. And what we come to real quickly is uh, the wisdom of of men apart from God is a disaster. When we decide to go it alone and we say we don't need God and we throw him out, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And you can go back through history and you can look at that and you can see that over and over again. And so we need to just begin for it not to be folly, to begin to look at who we are apart from God, who we are as people that we're sinful and we're messed up and we do all kinds of things. Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth that was starting to get kind of, Uh, a little uppity and there was divisions in the church and i follow paul and i follow apollos and they're thinking that they're now someone because look who uh we've we've got connected with paul and look what he says to him in verses 26 to 30 for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise god chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so he tells us and he and he says here that uh, who we are apart from Christ, he's writing to the church and he's telling them, and he says, don't forget where you came from. If you're starting to get uppity and look at me and look at what I've accomplished, he says, remember who you were. We see this all the way through scripture, right? You can go to Isaiah chapter 64 where it tells us that all our good works apart from God, anything we try to do are like filthy rags. Or you can go to Romans 3 and listen, read through that list of who it tells, uh, what it says about us apart from God, that no one seeks God, no one, and and we're quick to to kill and do all these horrible things. And he lays out the whole list in Romans three. And so what you start to get is this picture of, of who we are apart from Christ. Now you may, you may read that and you say, uh, God chose what is lowly and despised and foolish and weak and go, man, that's a little bit over the top, isn't it? I want you to notice just what Paul's saying in the context. He's writing to a people that were in very much a very divided society where there was the rich and then there was the really poor and there wasn't a whole lot in between. And he's writing to people that were on the lower end of this. And and he's saying, reminding them where they came from. And so he's talking about society in a lot of ways and the differences and saying God didn't choose you and you didn't become a Christian and this didn't happen because you were really rich or you were really well off or you're really any of those things. That's not the way how God works. But I would say that's also true of us even though society the way we're looking at it today it's not exactly what Paul was writing to, but the same is true of our spiritual condition. Apart from Christ, we're a mess. And so in order to begin to avoid to see the folly, we need to see ourselves. Oftentimes we see ourselves much better than we actually are, right? Especially in our society today. I'm pretty good. Yeah, well, God is perfect and okay, I'll buy into that. And I may be a sinner and I've made some mistakes, but I'm a pretty good person. That's what often ends up getting said. And I'm a pretty good person. And if I'm a pretty good person, then I'll try my hardest and, and God will accept me. Right. That's kind of the. The philosophy, the religious feel good of today. If I do enough, then God will accept me. But the problem is, one, we're seeing ourselves better than we are. But the bigger problem is we're seeing God far less than he is. When we start to talk that way, like I could somehow earn my way to God. I was thinking of just a visual picture of this. I heard this said a little while back. If you took one piece of paper to represent the distance from the earth to the sun, one piece of paper, Uh, Our uh, galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. We can't even really fathom that. I mean, that's trying to put it into a word picture. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Because Psalm 19 says that God created the heavens to show you his glory. To show you who he is. He spoke into existence All there is just so flung them out there with with his voice, with his word so that you would see a little bit of how great he is. And so when we start to talk about, oh, I can, you know, I'm a pretty good person and God will accept me. We're missing who God is. And so the second part of how do we avoid this fall is we need to see who we are, but we need to see who God is. And without that, we're hopelessly lost. We'll miss it altogether. And so as we think about that, you know, often I'm thinking in terms of those that have rejected Christ, right? The cross is folly to those who are perishing, those that have not done what Jesus says in John 3, 16 and 17 and 18. They haven't called on the name of Jesus to be saved. And so to them, it's folly. They are perishing. But I want to suggest to you that there's times functionally in our life that the gospel can become folly as a Christian. The cross of Christ becomes folly because we start to not act as the way it is we don't accept it in our lives and i say it that way because of this Uh, if you're a christian uh, there's there's times when it's easy to slip into some arrogance as a christian and that's what was happening in the church here in corinth that's what they were doing and let me describe what i mean right if we're a christian what i mean is that you're Putting complete and total faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You're saved completely and totally because God came down in the form of Jesus. He came as a man and he walked among us and he lived this perfect life. And then he said, I will take your sin and I will give you as a free gift salvation by what I do for you. It's all my doing for you. And so what happens and how the cross starts to become folly in our own lives is is we turn on the TV and we see Richard Dawkins on TV. And there he is in all his arrogance and self-sufficiency, maybe aliens, but not God. And we start to get angry or I do. I listen to him and he frustrates me. Oh, that guy. Right. And if I'm real honest, there's times as I'm listening to Richard Dawkins and I go, he is so arrogant. Right. He is so arrogant. Look at that guy. Right. And then quickly my heart goes, I'm so glad I'm not like him. Right. Right. He's so obnoxious or he's so this or he's so whatever. Or I start to go, man, I'm I'm thankful that I'm a little more enlightened. I'm a little more moral or or worse yet. I'm so much more humble than Richard Dawkins is. Right. You ever do that? You start to pat yourself on the back and look, look at what I've done. And I say, have you ever done that? I know you have. I know we all have. That's our sin nature. That's our flesh welling up in us. Yeah, God chose you because you're a pretty good person. Right. That starts to come. And if that's you, and I know that's been you at some point in time, I want you just to hear God's word this morning and really hear this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose What is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And I want you just to see that so clearly. God chose what is lowly and despised. When he says that, he's talking about us. (laughs) He's talking about those that have become and put their faith in him. That he chose what is lowly and despised. And then in verse 30, it says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It is God's doing. And so when I start to slip into thinking, oh, look at Richard Dawkins and how arrogant I'm the same. And but by the grace of God, I would be the exact same in every way. And it's only because of what Christ has done for me that I'm not. And it's nothing in me and it's all Jesus and nothing else. And so the picture is that the I just say that as a warning for us because it's so easy. And maybe it's not Richard Dawkins. Maybe it's somebody else. You see somebody and you go, oh, look at that guy over there. He's struggling with that. I'm so glad I'm not like him. Right. Well, the reason you're not like him is because of Jesus. But the reason or really the reality is you are just like him. <laughs> And it's just because God's working in different ways and at different places and at different times and that we are no different and we are just as sinful. And so I want us just to think lastly, just real briefly, how is that power? How is the the cross of Christ power? uh, But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. How is it the power of God? And the first thing I want you to see is uh, that it frees you when you understand this. Right. So often, I said at the beginning, people will go on reality shows because they just want to be known. Right. They just want their few minutes of being on TV or whatever. And we do it in all different ways. Right. I I want to be the best at my job so that I can say, hey, look at what I do. Or I want my my kids to be really good at sports so I can go, hey, I'm the dad of the great whatever. Right. And we, we find all different ways to do that. And we start to make it. And so the power of the cross becomes you are freed from all of that. You're somebody and you're loved and you're together and you're all those things because God set his sight on you and he chose you and he loves you completely and totally. And it has nothing to do with you but what he's done. And that is radically freeing. That is the power of the cross. That it's not dependent on my works and how well I do and these other things. It's dependent on Jesus and him alone. And that is a wonderful blessing that is the power of the cross. And what happens when that's the case is that it, it should humble you greatly. It should come into your life and make a real humility of, of who you are is because of Christ. And so what happens is then it frees you to love other people. Because instead of looking down and going, oh, that guy over there. I go, yeah, that guy over there is just like me. And I know what he needs more than anything else. And it's Jesus. And it frees you. And it frees you to get to what Paul will say in in chapter four, which we'll get to in six months probably. But in chapter four, when he says that uh, I don't worry about what men say, I worry about what God says. It frees you to get to that. And it frees you to when you hear Richard Dawkins speaking to be broken and weep that he is. He doesn't see it. And to get on your face and to pray that God would open his eyes. That he would come to faith and that he would see that God would remove the spirit of arrogance. And it opens you to be able to go and to love people the way Christ has loved you in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. Because it's all him and nothing else. And then the last thing I would say, just look at verse 25 with me and we'll end right there. For the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men what happens is when you start to see this and the the cross takes root and god opens your eyes through the spirit and you begin to see it then something marvelous happens god reveals to you who you are but then you start to see who he is and how great he is and you begin to see that the wisdom of god is far greater than anything else And he begins to do a work and he doesn't just leave you there. It says he then comes and dwells inside of you and he begins to make you new. He becomes to regenerate you and and work in ways that you never thought imaginable. And then you see more and more how much greater God is than anything else because of what he's done for us in Jesus. And so when you look at those things of what God is doing all throughout history and through Christ and what he's doing in our lives, we can say, yes, it is the power of. Of God. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. May that always be at the forefront of our hearts. And our minds. Let's pray. Lord we do thank you. We thank you that. Despite our foolishness. And our continual turning from you. And and running from you. That you have. In your loving kindness and mercy. Come down and. And Chosen to reveal yourself to us and we thank you for that. We pray for those that we know many uh, friends and family and co-workers that that don't know the power of the cross and we ask that you would use us in that that you would give us a great humility and love for others that we'd seek to go forth and proclaim the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us and that we would see in our own lives each day and that we would go out and we would proclaim and we would see the power of the cross manifest in everything and in every way and everywhere we go and that we would walk in that power each day. We thank you for all you've done for us and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.